Welcome to the Raising Biotech podcast. I'm your host, Sarani Fernando, and thanks for tuning in. This podcast has a mission of exploring biotechs raising impressive funds to develop ambitious medical breakthroughs. I speak with CEOs and founders to get origin stories, missions, and future visions for the company. And I also talk with relevant medical and industry experts to get more context on the company's potential to really make a difference in healthcare. Today, we're diving into eGenesis, a company vying to take cross-species transplantation or xenotransplantation into mainstream medicine. In an area of medicine that has seen a lot of starts and stops, the organ shortage problem is a big one with millions of people on the waiting list for an organ transplant. eGenesis's research coming out of Harvard has made some meaningful strides for the field thanks to the advancements of gene editing. Founded in 2015, the company has raised a total of $263 million over three financing rounds, and as it edges closer to the clinic in the next year or two, it will look to raise further funds and sign partnerships. On this episode, I'm talking to the company's CEO, Mike Curtis. He joined eGenesis in 2020 when the company was well on its way with preclinical research. We talk about the history and conundrums of xenotransplantation over the last century, what eGenesis has been able to achieve over its founding years, its recent groundbreaking publication in Nature, and how it's progressing with regulators in uncharted territory to enter clinical trials. I'm also joined by Dr. Adam Greisema, Associate Professor of Surgery at NYU Langen Health. He'll give us his view on the company's approach, potential to make a difference, and what challenges lie ahead. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hello, Serenity. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So just to start us off, can you just explain the current issue we have with organ transplantation that really calls for the type of technology and work that eGenesis is doing? Sure, happy to. So cell organ transplant is probably one of the most successful medical interventions in history. Patients who receive human allografts uh, for kidney transplant, heart transplant, do incredibly well. Uh, it has really changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of patients across the world. The biggest challenge becomes it works so well that we now have a huge shortage of organs. We have more patients that need a life-saving kidney transplant or heart transplant than the available organ. So we've been looking for technologies for the past 50 years that can solve this organ shortage problem. And our approach at eGenesis is to use what we call cross-species transplantation or xenotransplantation to create donors that can provide organs to solve this organ shortage. Xenotransplantation, that's the transplantation of organs from one species to another, is a concept that has been around for centuries, but was first really attempted in the early 1900s with organs from a variety of species, including monkeys, chimpanzees, baboons, pigs, and other animals. And every attempt failed, largely due to the body's own immune system rejecting those grafts. In the 1960s, with the use of immunosuppressants, scientists took a fresh shot with organ transplant surgery. And while we saw the first successful human transplantation, it appeared immunosuppression wasn't quite enough for xenotransplantation as subjects didn't survive the transplant. Since then, scientists have continued to pursue xenotransplantation in ebbs and flows, all with disappointing results. One of the biggest shifts for the field was abandoning the use of donor organs from non-human primates like monkeys and chimpanzees. And that was largely because of the relatively high infectious disease risk for humans, given our genetic similarities. 
Some of you may remember that HIV came from primate transmission. Additionally, there are some other practical and ethical issues with breeding non-human primates. And so the field moved on from thinking about primates as sources of organs probably almost 30, 40 years ago. And then the idea was to use porcine donors as the organ source. And what was shown originally was if you just try to take a wild type porcine organ and transplant it into a monkey, it'll be rejected in a couple of hours. And so it was discovered right away that we're going to have to do something to improve the compatibility of porcine organs with non-human primate or human recipients. And so the field set off on a several decade quest to, to try to figure out, you know, what are the modifications that we need to make to improve compatibility between the porcine organ and human recipient? And what we've done at eGenesis is combine all of these findings for the past couple of decades. And just to summarize... So the scientific brains behind the company are Harvard researchers and co-founders George Church and Lu Han Yang. All of the company's findings led them to a magic number of 69 gene edits in the pig genome. And that was broken into three groups. The first group was inactivating three enzymes to prevent organ rejection. The second lot of gene edits was inserting seven human transgenes to increase human compatibility of the porcine organ. And then the last one was 59 gene edits to reduce the potential of retroviral transmission because it's been documented that this is still a possible risk between pigs and humans. Up until recently, there was no way to adequately address uh, this retroviral transmission risk. Along comes CRISPR-Cas9, which is almost the ideal tool. CRISPR-Cas9, or the genetic scissors, has generated a massive buzz since the mid-2010s. It won the Nobel Prize in 2020, and we just saw the first CRISPR-based therapy approved in the UK. In any pig genome, you're going to have between 50 and 70 copies of the endogenous retrovirus. And CRISPR can actually hit all loci in a genome. So what George uh, Church and his team at Harvard showed was they could use CRISPR-Cas9 to inactivate all copies of the endogenous retrovirus. That was sort of the origins of eugenesis. We were founded on using that idea. And so now what we've created is what we consider is a clinical donor that carries a total of 69 edits, 59 edits to inactivate retroviruses, three edits to reduce hyperacute rejection, and then seven regulatory transgenes to promote long-term grass survival. So we're the first group to incorporate all three classes of edits into a clinical grade donor. So we know that xenotransplantation research goes back decades, but let's go back and look at some of the highlights of eGenesis's journey and when Mike came into the picture. When you talk to the world of uh, xenotransplantation, oh, this was always a challenge. Like, how are we going to deal with this retroviral transmission risk? And as soon as George and Luhan showed you could do it, and there was a, a paper in Science in 2016 that summarized that result, they then went ahead and made a pig from those edited cells, and that came out in 2017. And so it was demonstrated that you could inactivate these retroviruses and could produce viable offspring. That was the uh, beginning uh, of eugenesis. And so that was when we founded the company, um, went down the path of producing this first fully edited donor. So with all of those findings, let's talk money. So in March 2017, eGenesis announced a $38 million Series A, led by Biomedics Capital and Arch Venture Partners. Then later in November 2019, the company raised a further $100 million, led by Fresenius Medical Care Ventures. Then finally, in March 2021, the company raised another $125 million in a Series C, 
from a large list of healthcare VCs all hedging their bets on the potential solution to organs shortage. I joined the company about three years ago, right as the team was coming to the end of the engineering optimization. So as you can imagine, to try to make a, a donor that carries 69 edits, it didn't work the first time, right? So it took a few tries. One of the big challenges was to introduce human transgenes into the genome and get consistent gene expression. And most of my background is translating ideas from the bench, new scientific ideas, into the clinic. Just a side note, Mike first joined eGenesis in 2020 as president of R&D and was later named CEO in April 2022. And my Simple question was just how far away are we from, you know, turning this really science fiction idea into clinical reality? And at the time, the team had done the first porcine kidney transplant into a monkey and the, and the kidney function for about 300 days. So when I saw that data, I was like, hey, it looks like we're pretty close. And now, of course, we've taken that much further over the past three years. And now we have a data set that we believe supports the initiation of a first uh, inhuman clinical trial. So speaking about that data set, that was a Nature publication in October, which had pretty significant findings for the company moving forward. The core of the paper is a series of 21 transplants. Six of those transplants... So these were transplants of pig kidneys into monkeys. Six of those donor kidneys only had the three gene edits that take care of hyperacute rejection. So ultimately aiming to prevent the body's antibodies from rejecting the organ in a matter of minutes. The other 15 transplants were done with the eGenesis magic number of 69 edits. So remember, that's the same three edits that take care of hyperacute rejection, an additional seven edits that insert human transgenes, and then there are 59 edits taking care of retroviruses. You can find the paper in the show notes, so you can easily just click through and see the results. But the high-level findings was that the three-edit group showed a maximum survival of 50 days, whilst the eGenesis 69-edit group showed a maximum survival of just over two years. One of the big breakthroughs that we show in the, in the paper is that we can not, not only put human genes into the pig genome, but we can get consistent expression for over two years. So clearly demonstrating that the inclusion of regulatory human transgenes into the porcine genome is important to promote long-term graft survival. And also, this is the first data set to robustly show that we can get recipients past 12 months. And this is really important to the FDA because the FDA views the 12-month endpoint in the monkey as an important milestone to moving into the first clinical trials. I spoke with Dr. Adam Greisema, Associate Professor of the Department of Surgery at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. His journey into this area of medicine started about 25 years ago when he was a lab technician investigating xenotransplantation, which intrigued him so much, he changed his career path. I've been working on xenotransplantation in many different capacities as a research technician, a postdoc, and a principal investigator in laboratories uh, studying xenotransplants in both non-human primate recipients, and now also brain-dead human recipients. Because of that, he's worked with many different companies involved in xenotransplantation, but said he's never been paid for anything other than the research that he was doing in collaboration with them. He's currently not working with eGenesis, but he did disclose that he is working on a proposal to study some aspects of xenotransplantation together with the company. I asked him to paint the picture of the current organ shortage problem and where xenotransplantation could really make a difference. So 
the data that I'm most familiar with are the United States data. This can be characterized broadly around the world as well. In the United States, there are 130,000 people waiting organ transplantation and waiting for a human organ to become available. And it's estimated that a little bit more than half of those patients will actually get a transplant, but the other portion will die or be removed from the list because they're too sick to get a transplant. And this is actually only a fraction of the patients that could benefit from transplantation. There are several thousands of patients that are not actually listed for transplant because we don't believe we can get them an organ in time. So if we were able to perform xenotransplantation as a routine, it's much more likely that we would transplant hundreds of thousands of people in the United States and then millions of people around the world. Currently, more people are waiting for a kidney transplant than any other organ, followed by liver transplants and heart transplant. But for xenotransplantation, the two organs that are the furthest along to actual clinical application are heart xenotransplant and kidney xenotransplant. I got his overall thoughts on eGenesis and their massive progress with xenotransplantation. It, there's no question that gene editing is one of the major breakthroughs in terms of being able to do xenotransplantation, and it's brought us to the cusp of clinical trials. The strategy taken by eGenesis is to try to really modify the genome to make the pig kidney or pig organ as close to the human situation as possible. We spoke about the strategy to go with 69 edits, which is quite a lot more edits than what's been done historically in the field, particularly the 59 edits to remove sources of retroviruses that might potentially translate from the pig to the human. Several researchers suspect that the chance that this virus could actually jump from the pig to the human is very, very low. But their strategy is why take any chance at all if you can eliminate them through gene editing. But separate from those 59 edits, Dr. Greismer elaborated on the reason why inserting those seven human transgenes into the pig genome was so important in generating that final result of a monkey recipient surviving for two years with a pig kidney. So when the pig organ comes into contact with the human blood system, which is what happens after we, we sew the, the blood vessels in from the kidney to the recipient and we perfuse it with the recipient's blood, there are some mismatches in terms of regulating how that blood interacts with the blood vessel lining. And so they tried to put as many human genes onto the pig kidney or pig organ as possible to try to make those interactions as close to how human blood would interact with a human organ as possible. So by, by doing that, they were able to achieve, you know, multiple year survival of these kidneys. And I think you know, if we can consistently achieve multiple year survival, that we're going to be really ready to do this in, in clinical trials. I asked him how eGenesis's recent results published in Nature compared to other xenotransplantation attempts. As a group, you know, we certainly represented the longest published survival. There are other groups that have done xenotransplant where animals have survived for uh, over four years, select animals have survived for over four years, but they haven't published those results. But they have presented them at national conferences. It's not the only animals that have survived that long, but I would say it's probably achieved the most consistent survival of two years to any case series that we've seen. Dr. Greisman said that there is a debate among academics as to how many genetic edits are necessary for a successful transplant. 
He said some of the gene edits can be dealt with pharmaceutical drugs, and there's also a question on what each edit is doing. When you make the 69 edits and test them in one go, it's hard to know which of those 69 edits are really making a difference and which are along for the ride and not really doing much in achieving the desired outcome. The challenge with doing them one at a time is that could take decades to really figure out which ones are important and which ones are along for the ride. Um, and so the strategy that eGenesis has is to do all of them at once, show that together, at least, you're getting superior outcomes compared to organs that are less genetically modified, and then use that organ as kind of one construct. We talk later in the episode about why there might be practical and scale-up benefits to less genetic edits, so keep listening. eGenesis actually has three programs it's pursuing kidney transplant, a liver perfusion program, and pediatric heart transplant. But we're going to focus on its clinical path forward in kidney transplant because it's the biggest unmet need and where most investors are likely hedging their biggest bets. So as eGenesis gathers its preclinical findings, it's preparing to go into clinical trials, which is uncharted territory for the industry. So it needs quite a comprehensive dialogue with regulators like the FDA to understand what it needs to show to be approved. Overall, the FDA has been incredibly supportive. Uh, I think they realize the unmet need. They realize the potential here. Because we're building an entirely new area of medicine, there's all the regulatory science that has to go along with it. They have been very collaborative in helping us figure out, you know, what does the manufacturing need to look like? What does the non-clinical data set need to look like? What does a first-in-human study look like? What are registrational endpoints? balancing risk, benefit, and safety for patients. Um, and we found the FDA to be incredibly collaborative in helping us figure out the, the right path. eGenesis is trying to work within the existing framework of clinical trials. So the typical phase one, two, three, first prioritizing safety in small groups of patients and then larger trials for efficacy. But I asked him about the target patient population. We've discussed this with the agency. You know, we have come to an agreement, the target patient population, for instance, in the first in human trial, will likely be patients over 60 years old on the transplant waiting list having failed the previous human aloe transplant. Most of those patients would either end up passing away or end up on dialysis for the rest of their lives. And Mike says this constitutes a good risk-benefit population. If you're 60 and older and you've failed a human aloe transplant, you've likely had previous history on dialysis and many of those patients don't want to go back on dialysis. Some patients, sadly, actually choose not to go on dialysis and choose to die. So there is, I think, an alignment or between the patient population, the regulators, and you know, the sponsor. That makes a lot of sense for the first in human trial for kidney transplant. One of the reasons we like it as a first indication is if things didn't go well, patients should be able to go back onto dialysis, right? So from a risk-benefit perspective, we think kidney transplant, because you have this reversibility and potentially go back on dialysis, makes a lot of sense. I asked Mike about clinical trial timelines and where they might be conducted. We're exploring kidney transplant both in the U.S. and in Japan. There is the potential to run a research clinical trial in Japan as early as the end of next year. But more than likely, our kidney clinical trials would start in 2025. Mike said a potential Japanese trial will be done with a local company that's been interested in a collaboration. The organ shortage in Japan or Asia in general is much greater than the West, mainly due to brain death not being widely recognized in order to retrieve donor organs. 
eGenesis hasn't disclosed that potential partner, but Mike said it was a company that started several years ago by Japanese transplant surgeons and embryologists. They've been trying to engineer donors too, but felt the best path might be just to collaborate. We can send them our genetic starting material and we can make donors in Japan. And so that's what we're doing right now. We hope to have the first donors born before the end of the year or early next year. And then once we establish the donors, then we can open up this second regulatory path to a first in human trial in Japan. And then broadly Asia, because this is a worldwide you know, organ shortage, not just the US. If eGenesis's clinical trials go well and it gets through all the phases and convincingly proves safety and efficacy, which of course is a lot easier said than done, I was speaking to Dr. Greisemer about how a company could possibly implement this product and we spoke about some of the logistical considerations and challenges that the company will need to think about. With the infectious disease concerns, the FDA has indicated that the pigs will have to be bred in specific facilities with regulation of what types of infections and viruses and bacteria they are exposed to. So it is likely that we will have several nodes where these pigs are housed. He said the organ procurement would be performed at those facilities and then the organ would be shipped to the location of the recipient. There's also another model that could involve recipients going to the location of where the pigs are to be operated on, but shipping is more likely. So the transportation will have to be worked out. The preservation of each type of organ will have to be worked out. At least in primate models, the preservation of the heart is a critical component to success following transplantation and the time interval between when the organ is removed from the pig to transplant it to the recipient is critical. Earlier, we talked about why the field isn't using monkeys or non-human primates as the organ donors. But I was curious as to how they settled on the pig. And there are a number of reasons for this. One of them is that pigs are easier to breed and scale up compared to other animals. And they also have a good organ size compatible to humans. The pig breed that we chose is, it's called a Yucatan mini pig. So fully grown, this pig will be somewhere between 150 and 180 pounds. And the organs are correctly sized uh, to be compatible with human recipients. We typically think about a porcine donor as a donor that's about seven months old or older. At that point, those donors are fully grown. And most of those organs should be compatible with most adults. And when we talk about breeding and scaling the organs to meet the demand of the organ shortage lists, There are different ways you can do this, and that will likely come down to how many edits are in the pig genome. That is one of the challenges, I think, with the multiple genetic edit pigs. So you are doing nuclear transfer, so you're modifying the genome and then doing a a nuclear transfer like they did with Dolly when they cloned the sheep and generating these pigs with these 69 gene edits. With cloning technology, Um, You can generate a number of pigs this way, but it is more expensive and it's more time consuming. Ideally, we would want to generate these genetically modified pigs and then breed them. And one of the reasons why we use pigs in the first place is because of their favorable breeding characteristics. So they become sexually mature in nine months, they have short gestation times, and they have multiple pigs per litter. So if you generated an ideal genetic construct for organ transplantation, say for a kidney or a heart, you could breed the pigs to a large number very quickly so that you can upscale this rapidly. 
One of the challenges that people have encountered with multiple genetic edits is that many times those pigs don't breed very well and breeding can be a problem. So upscaling a heavily genetically modified pig could be time-consuming or expensive if we have to rely extensively on cloning and cannot rely on breeding. And that's one of the reasons why at NYU, we've kind of asked the question, well, how many do you need? Because if, if they breed really well with only a few genetic edits, that's going to be a bit more practical, at least in the short term. Now, long term, I think it makes sense to get the best outcomes you possibly can. And that will probably involve more genetic edits. But it may take more time and be more expensive to bring that up to scale to address that huge number of patients that need organ transplantation. So the priority for eGenesis at this point is to just get it right and generate the best survival outcomes in clinical trials. But if this works, scalability will be something the company will need to consider, and this might be also reconsidering that magic number of genetic edits. But this is all hypothetical, and we'll have to wait and see. As I was talking to Mike and Dr. Greismer, I had so many thoughts running around in my head. Firstly, I couldn't get Babe out of my head, and I also thought about how sci-fi this development really is. I thought about the societal impacts of this and how patients feel about living with a pig organ, and also if there's any noise from animal welfare groups. Most patients that you speak with that are living with liver failure or kidney failure on dialysis just want to be off dialysis. And if it's a matter of a pig kidney, most patients are raising their hand saying, fine with me. Now, it no, won't be for everyone, right? And some patients will choose not to do it. But what we've seen so far is many patients want it. Many patients want to do it. What we actually you know, always see is when we publish data like we did in Nature, there's an inbound interest to say, you know, when can I sign up, right? Um, so generally, I would say it's been very positively received for the most part. As far as the like PETA and animal welfare societies, they've, they've been very, I think, realistic about this that we are saving human lives by doing this, potentially, if, if we're doing this successfully. And rather than saying, you know, let's not do this at all, most of the interactions with them have, have involved, how can we do this in the most ethically responsible way to minimize the number of animals that are involved in this and to make sure that, you know, in the breeding and growing of the animals, that we do this in a completely humane way. He made the fair point that at least in the US, over 100 million pigs are slaughtered every year for food. And the transplant list is 130,000, so the relative number of pigs that would be used for transplant is actually quite small. You know, PETA and those types of organizations recognize that, and they just want to ensure that we're doing this in an ethically responsible way. Egenesis raised $125 million in March 2021, and Mike and I discussed where that takes them and their next financing steps. Right now, our current capital takes us into next year. We are currently raising capital to ensure that we can enroll and conduct the, the liver and the kidney transplant trials. So that's what we're focused on now. Egenesis needs that money to start clinical trials and hasn't publicized the amount it's raising. Our existing investor syndicate is incredibly supportive. We are talking to bringing new investors into the syndicate. And as we continue to advance, we'll continue to round out what the actual capital raise is going to be. In addition to raising funds, the company is also in talks about potential co-development partnerships. 
you know, going forward and going worldwide here, we will want to partner uh, and bring in the folks who share our vision for changing the organ supply of dynamics. And we've spoken to a lot of folks that you would think would be interested in this. You know, two of our strategic investors are, you know, Baron Fresenius. They've been supportive of our, what we've been doing for the past several years. I think one of the challenges for traditional pharma is this is a completely new space. Everyone gets the unmet need. Everyone recognizes the huge market opportunity. But I think that the challenge for us is to demonstrate that we can help patients sooner to show the potential for the products, right? Because it is so new and so unproven, our priority is to demonstrate that proof of, of, of helping patients. So it's more like device companies? I think they're all on the table. I, th I think the device companies are already in the space of maybe a bit more than traditional pharma. Uh, but I don't think the opportunity is lost on anyone, right? That if you can bring a product to help these patients, uh, it's a huge opportunity for whoever wants to you know, take on that challenge. I think getting that first demonstration of proof of concept in patients, uh, that will catalyze potential partnerships. When it comes to a potential future path forward, whether it be more financing rounds, partnerships, M&A or IPO, Mike says as eGenesis goes into uncharted territory, all options are on the table. Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges, if you look across the industry, I would I would argue that this cross-species transplantation has to be one of the most unique opportunities. And so therefore, it's all on the table. You know, there is no, this is the way we normally do it. And the markets are so profoundly huge that the opportunity is really, I think, bigger than many can digest if you're going to take down the whole thing, right? So yeah, all, 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 all potential options are on the table, certainly. Mike said the ultimate vision is to produce organs that don't require immunosuppression with medication. For this, the company needs data from the clinic to see how patients are responding to existing engineered donors to give them a better idea on what next generation donors might look like. We actually think that the path to not requiring suppression is actually through cross-species transplantation more so than through human-to-human -human transplantation because we cannot engineer the human donor. Right. We can engineer the porcine donor, right? So 10 years time, I would hope that we've advanced the engineering to the point where we can produce organs that don't require suppression. We're at a point in the history of cross-species transplantation that we will be moving into the first clinical trials and really realizing the vision that was launched you know, several decades ago uh, to solve this organ shortage problem. I think we're now at the beginning of the, the clinical test. So that's it for another episode of Raising Biotech. I have learned a ton and I hope you have too. This is truly unbelievable and groundbreaking science. And while the company will no doubt have many challenges and curveballs ahead, I'm wishing them well and I'll definitely be watching them from the sidelines as they head into the clinic. Thanks to my guests, Mike Curtis and Dr. Adam Greismer for giving up their valuable time and incredible insight. And thanks to you for listening in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe, rate and review it on Apple or Spotify, and please share it around with those you think might be interested. But for now, I'm Sarani Fernando, and I'll catch you next time on Raising Biotech.